Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country talk about politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kinnig. Uh, and before we get started, Craig, just to let people know, I um, am coming off of a day of nonstop virtual meetings with a pounding headache and feeling nasally from a cold that I'm getting over that's lingering. So just trying to set expectations low for what I can deliver tonight. I was, I was just going to tell everybody that sultry, sexy voice you had. Where did you get that, Brandon? Ah. And what are you doing this weekend? You had to root it all and tell everybody. We'll go cold. with that, yeah. You know, before we just turn the mics on, we were talking and, and I brought the topic up that since COVID, I feel like I get sick a lot more. You right. brought up that might just be perception and, and that might be true, but it certainly feels like just allergies. I've had terrible allergies. I've had more colds, more flus. It just seems like everybody's been sick more since 2020. Uh, yeah, and I don't know. That might be something to do with so much being dormant for those two years, and now with people just out in full force, and you know, flights being full, and I mean, travel yeah. all time high. That everything is spreading much more rapidly than it even was because we went from, you know, I guess like standard level of like human movement to nothing, then now it's just exploded. Yeah. So I don't know if things are circulating more than they used to in the past. But I also feel like there's a lot out there that we don't know of that's just kind of circulating besides COVID. And so that's contributing to the yeah. you know general sense of illness. But yeah. Brandon, I've been you. to the doctor three times in the last six months. That's more than I've been to the doctor in the last 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Just over, if anybody listens to the podcast, you hear me constantly sniffing, snorting, you know, sticking my finger up my nose. I've had allergy issues. It seems like now for the past two years that I've had to go to an allergist to see if I can get under, get back under control. Well, and I've always had allergies, but again, I feel like to your point, they're flaring up more often now and earlier yeah. than usual. Um, we'll, we'll end the allergy talk here, but did you ever <laughs> take an allergy medicine for like an extended period of time and then just have it not work anymore? That's uh, my big problem. No, I haven't. I've only taken it for small periods of time, so I haven't had that yeah. experience. But I, I have you ever gone to an allergist where they do the test to find out like everything environmentally? I just went to one yesterday. That's really worthwhile. And they laid you on your back, and they do like it felt like nine to twelve different little scratch tests and prick tests oh, yeah. on your back. Oh, see, they did do it on my back. They did it like on my arm and hand, and then yeah. they did like they would apply like oils and different things okay. from like trees and plants to figure out what that. I think they just do it now on your back. Oh, that's interesting. That's and they different. Come yeah. in, it's like okay, what's itching? What's in, and I guess they turn color or something. But I've got some pollen and some mold stuff that I need to get on some shots. Mold, but. mildew, pollen is mine. But I'm also allergic to like a crap ton of like plants and trees yeah. that I didn't even know about. So yeah. that was kind of insightful. Brandon, it seems like, too, the world's a little bit of a more dangerous place since you and I last got together and talked on the microphones. Very much so in the last two weeks. So, you know, the just horrible attack by Hamas. How stunned were you looking at that last Saturday? Because to me, Israel is a fortress with a massive military, modern in every way, shape, or form, surveillance everywhere. Nine Israeli military bases were overrun by Hamas last week. I didn't think there was any world that existed that that could happen. I didn't either. I mean, the Israeli security, intelligence, military apparatus is unparalleled. But clearly, this was a massive intelligence failure in Israel. You have Israelis that are speaking out about it. There's actually a lot of talk right now, too, that 
the issues with uh, Bibi Netanyahu fighting the judiciary didn't help. That that didn't help. There was uh, consternation in the ranks of the military too, with the military being very divided yeah. over that and upset. So it feels like that became a distraction that only I think ended up serving or assisting Hamas, you know, indirectly in terms of what they were attempting to do. But it's also just incredible to me because Israeli forces are supposed to have intelligence in Gaza on the ground, yeah, like know what's going on. And so even if this has been planned over years, it's just, it's crazy to me that they didn't know about this at all. That, the, you know, if there were warning signs they were missed, I expect there's going to be a full-fledged investigation kind of like what we saw with the 9-11 Commission here in the United mm-hmm. States. It needs to be on that level. But clearly, Israelis have to be asking a lot of questions of their government because this, I mean, there's no excuse for them being so blindsided by this. Yeah. And I mean, they were just under bombardment and assault. And I mean, Hamas was able to... Thousands of soldiers breached yeah, the fence. just breach. I mean, and uh, I mean, you're talking about over 1,200 Israelis dead. Um, what is also so sad and ironic about this is one of the the first uh, areas of attack was a, a music festival for peace, yeah, of all things. Brutal. I brutal. mean, this was a festival for peace, and you have these young people that are just slaughtered. Yeah. Um, women raped, children, babies killed even. People with au- the, a girl with autism was kidnapped and taken back to yeah. Palestine. Well, Holocaust survivors God. were some of the... Uh, people kidnapped as well. Have you ever seen the movie The Rock with Sean Connery? Yes, many years ago. We actually had to watch that in school. <laughs> I want to say it was either middle school or high school we what, watched what that. What educational value did The Rock movie have? Wait, is this the one about like Masada, like the <laughs> no, Jews? No, oh. no, you're thinking of a different movie, which is absolutely phenomenal. Okay. I can't think of the movie, but yes, it was a TV movie about... Um, was it Masad, the, the the big giant uh, fortress? Yes, yes. Masada, or I think it was Masada. Yes, I, I, yes, I do remember that movie because my memory is really good for movies. It had That's Peter the one we O'Toole. had to watch in school. Yeah. Yes, okay, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, then <laughs> I don't know what you're talking that about. That had Peter O'Toole and I think Peter Strauss were the two leads, and it told the true story of small amount of Jews hid from the Romans in right. this uh, ancient fortress on a tower and hundreds of them. We actually watched that in Latin class, I remember, because of the Roman Latin class? Latin. Latin okay, class. I was going to say, wow. No, Latin class, yeah. So there was uh, the tie into the yeah. Roman history we were learning. But no, so what is the film you're talking about? Okay, so the movie The Rock with with uh, um, Sean Connery in it. That Sean Connery plays a, a soldier who is leading a hostage rescue mission against Ed Harris, who has taken hostages in Alcatraz and is threatening to blow up San Francisco. Oh, okay. And there's a line where Harrison and, and Connor, Sean Connery are together, and they're talking about this, op- this, this, this operation they're doing. And Ed, Ed Harris says something to the effect that he gives a, a patriotic quote that the, the tree of, of liberty has to be refreshed time to time with blood and tyrants. Patrick Somebody said that. Patrick Henry, probably. Patrick Henry, thank you. Yeah. I almost said Patrick Stewart, so I realized that, <laughs> that's Captain Picard. Wrong and, universe, yeah. <laughs> and Connery looks at him and basically says, this isn't war. These aren't soldiers. This is an act of lunacy. That scene and that line just came over and over on, on Saturday. These aren't freedom fighters. This no. isn't war. These are civilians. This is an act of terrorism and an act of lunacy that Hamas has to know ends with Israel just leveling the Gaza Strip. 
Yeah, I, it's difficult for me to understand the motivations and of Hamas or what they thought they would get out of this, um, unless somehow they were intending for what they thought Israel to overreact and then to like gain the world sympathy. That but has to be the only that, that's the only thing that logically makes sense. But yes, I mean Hamas did not attack the Israeli military; they attacked civilians. Yeah. they attacked women and children. I mean, that was what they did in very brutal and sadistic ways. And they and it, they reminded us, as they do time and time again, that they are a terrorist organization. 100%. I think that one of the things that, that struck me, so many people are, are now talking about the long history of the Israeli-Palestine conflict. And there's no way anybody can accurately cover from, from start to finish and give somebody kind of everything they need to know about the conflict. There's very too complicated, many very terms. complex. It's too complex. And anybody that comes to this comes with their, their priors. Everybody has a bias. Everybody has a slant to it. I think to, what's helped me and kind of, kind of framed up some thinking about where we're at and how we got here, let's just look at the Middle East from the Obama administration on. I think well, that gives us a nice framing. For that what is a nice framing, but I do want to take just a few steps back to the Bush administration because the blockade, uh, Israel's blockade of Gaza started in mm-hmm. 2007 as a uh, response to the elections. So the United States at the time, and under President George W. Bush and his administration, you know, was all about supporting and encouraging democracy in the yeah. Middle East. Unfortunately, we learned that many states are not ready for democracy and they're not mature enough for it. So the push for democracy in the Palestinian territories resulted in uh, the uh, Palestinians in Gaza electing Hamas as a direct yeah. response. Um, Israel began a blockade, as did Egypt. And so from 2007, early 2007 to now— um, Gaza has been under a blockade, which means Palestinians cannot leave the territory. Uh, you know, they, you know, people have described it as a kind of an open air prison, which is probably somewhat accurate. Um, and Hamas has continued to be the um, authority, the local, the elected mm-hmm. government there. And so, um, and I'll go back to you in a second, but the conundrum here that we always go back to is people always talk about like wanting to get to like a two state solution. The problem is that Israel, for their security, will not reform or open up the Palestinian territories as long as Hamas is in leadership, because Hamas sees the destruction of Israel as their ultimate goal. It's not a two-state solution for them. It's destroying Israel. Um, And so to get to that point, at some point, you would have to have a different representative, a different authority other than Hamas to represent the Palestinian side. And that has not been in, in place now for the better part of over a decade, yeah. no, 15 years. The phrase I want to focus in what you just said is they want democracy. They're just not mature enough or they just don't have a history or a mechanism. They don't have the institutions they don't yet have for the institution it. Yet. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to, I want to hold that thought as we kind of go through this. So how I was looking at this is Obama shows up and Obama says the way to middle East peace. And by the way, every president comes up with some middle East peace right. plan <laughs> and all of them ha- are fatally flawed. Obama comes in and says that the way to, to peace in the Middle East, peace in the Middle East is to moderate Iran. If you if a if Iran becomes more democratic, if Iran gets caught up in the Arab Spring, they're the largest nation in the area. There's almost 87 million people in Iran, and the vast majority of them are what under 35. 
Almost, they're, they're a very young country. Almost 50% of the population is under the age of 35. So yeah. Obama just gets elected. He's looking at the demographics in the United States and the political change that he's the leader of. He projects that onto Israel and, or onto Iran, and he says, okay, the way to bring peace in the Middle East is through moderating Iran, making them more democratic, and then the power structure here will be Iran, Israel, and the United States. And what they will be leading with is democracy. If Iran takes a step towards democracy and takes a step towards Israel, their spring then takes more off. We've got democracy flowering all over the Middle East, and that's how we're going to make things better. And I guess that plan is maybe as realistic, potentially, as any. Trump comes along and says, no, that's not the plan. The way to peace in the Middle East is not through moderating Iran, which, by the way, will never happen and which Trump was right on. We're going to swing this from a different angle. We're going to empower the Saudis in the Arab world. We're going to arm Saudi to the teeth. We're going to jump in bed with them. And through the Abraham Accords, we're going to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia and the Arab world with Israel. We're doing that to triangulate against Iran. So if the power in the Middle East is Israel, Saudi, and America, and everybody's armed with American weapons, and everybody has some sort of peace treaty with Israel, that boxes Iran in very, very tightly. Both of these plans have fatal flaws. Obama's fatal flaw is Iran is not going to moderate. I don't give a shit how many people 30 and less are. They're not going to do right. what needs to be the, done the government, to because, overthrow I mean, that government. Very well could be a more moderate population, but it's a totalitarian government. We're so that's dealing all that with matters. the governments yes. and the military. Right. And he made the – Obama made the, the calculation that the, the younger folks would grab the reign of power and they would want moderation and inclusion in the world's economy and all of those things. It's easier said than done, though, in an autocratic happen. government. You can't – <laughs> I got to tell you, that is a very – naive approach to Iran, yeah. and it takes a hell of a lot of hubris to think you can pull that off. I think the Obama plan was was dead from, from day one. Right. Had very little chance to work. By the same time, you also can't ignore Iran. You can't put all of these pieces in place, like the Abraham Accord, Accords, to bring the Arab world in alignment with Israel and just think Iran's going to sit on its hands and happen. So while Obama may have been too naive and too arrogant to think that, well, of course we can moderate Iran. Of course people want democracy. Of course all those young people want to live free. That's turning out to be an extremely naive approach to the Middle East. And Idealistic and naive. Trump's fatal flaw is too simplistic. Well, he didn't have a policy. Trump didn't have— Well, Brandon, if all these people just trade together, right? Transactional. Trump's policy was transactional. Trump's was transactional. If these people are transacting with each other and making money, they will put thousands of years of animus aside and operate like a little block. That had equally as little chance of succeeding as Obama's did. And that's where we're at. The lesson that we're learning here is you can't bring anything to fruition in the Middle East without dealing with Iran in some way. Well, and you just highlighted another potential motivation of Hamas. You know, there was this upcoming Saudi-Israeli accord that was going to take place. Correct. So some have said that Hamas did this as well to stop that because they saw that obviously as detrimental to 
you know, their power and their aims, and that was a threat to them. Well, I think, I agree with Ben Shapiro on this. I think how this all came about is, Iran told Hamas, hey, you have to, you have to do something with Israel. You have to, to, as this agreement, as the Abraham Accords start getting closer to fruition, and Israel was in talks with the Saudis. I, I don't believe in the Abraham Accords at all. Yeah. I don't believe the Arab world is ever gonna, going to moderate their their relationship with Israel. I think it's a it's a very again naive approach, and it just it's just not a sophisticated enough plan for that area. Or in real terms, beyond Correct. just like you know some superficial statement it, on paper. In Trump's mind, if everybody's making money, therefore everybody's friends and everybody's getting along. Transaction equals alignment to Trump in Trump's right. brain, and that's just not how this part of the world works. Oh, and he discounts the hundreds to thousands of years of Arab history a- and absolutely. culture and religion. Brandon, that's and all you- too hard. <laughs> Let's just do some business together. I'll buy from you. You buy from me. It's, 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 it's all good. Right. And neither one of them, neither one of these plans took a realistic approach to what could be done with, with Iran. And you're not going to do anything in the Middle East without, without Iran at the table. And that's what you're seeing now. I think what happened is Iran reached out and said, Hamas, hey, these Abraham Accords are progressing. We need these stopped. You want these stopped. I need you to attack Israel. We'll give you the weapons. We'll supply you with what you need. And I think they thought this would be a typical attack by Hamas. Right. A brief outburst of violence with rocket blast, maybe an incursion across the border, but nothing to the scale that we saw today. I think Iran is a bit nervous right now with what the next step of this is going to be. Yeah, I think that they may have um, overstepped and definitely didn't foresee um, Hamas I don't think they, out as much as they I don't think they thought they were the going to ex- do 1,400 dead, 200 captive, beheading children. Yeah, I don't think they thought they would do that. What makes it so dangerous, too, is that um, the goal right now is all of the powers that be are trying to prevent this from spilling over and becoming a regional conflict, which could easily happen, particularly with um, southern Lebanon, which is controlled by Hezbollah, who has began firing rockets into Israel and has done so periodically over the last you know, yeah. several decades, but that has amped up now. Um, and if so, and if the war spills over into Lebanon and then you get into a regional conflict and then you have other uh, regional states enter the conflict and can quickly spiral um, and get out of hand. I was listening to a, a NPR um, episode where they were talking about just the volume of missiles that Hamas has, because, you know, they've been just shooting these missiles over um, constantly. And most of the time, the Israeli um, air defense shields block them. But every once in a while, um, one of those missiles gets through because it's like an avalanche and they can only block so many. I mean, it's a sophisticated um, shield, but it's not um, perfect and it's not impervious to an onslaught. It can't do shit with a hang glider. Right. Apparently, and so, it doesn't know what those are. They move too slow for it to recognize them. That's a good good example. I wonder how they figured that out. But it strikes me that it's interesting to me that, you know, Gaza is 144 square miles. It's a very narrow strip of land. Yep. 2.2 million people, one of the most densely 
populated places in the world. But they also have tens of thousands of these missiles in Gaza. And so the question was, like, how are they getting these in, like, like unseen? Well, you know, the parts are coming in through Iran, through sure. Hezbollah. All these groups are transporting the parts, and then they build them there. But it's just striking to me that a territory of that size, that small, could have tens of thousands of missiles and at their disposal. It's just, it's that's mind-boggling. Well, it does lead credence to the argument every dollar of aid that's ever given to Gaza has gone to to low-grades weapons building. I mean, they dug up all the water pipes to have piping to build missiles. They have no infrastructure there because they've chosen not to have any infrastructure there. Here, here's what I don't understand. We're... If the Palestinians want away from Hamas so bad, where is the Palestinian Gaza resistance movement? Where are your moderate Palestinians in opposition to this? Why is it that no other Arab world will take these people in? These people are all Muslim. When we forget that Egypt has also enforced this blockade with Israel. They closed their borders and we ain't taking shit. All of the Arab worlds refuse to take these people because they're not allowing... Hamas to honeycomb themselves within their society. Well, and that's the thing. And I want to be very careful. I mean, obviously, you have many of the Palestinian people that are just there and caught in the middle of this, um, and not Hamas. But but yeah, I mean, the minute you open your border, I mean, you don't know who's coming in, and you're no. going to have Hamas fighters yeah. infiltrated as part of that, that group. And so the question becomes, like, how do you separate out the Palestinian civilians from the Hamas fighters? I mean, think about that. Egypt is a Muslim country. It has sat there since 2007 with this open-air prison and all of this oppression of its own people at the hand of the hated Jews. And what has it done? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. They've not let a single fucking person leave Gaza into Egypt. Yeah. Why? Why? That should tell you how much the rest of the Arab world does not want this problem. It also gives them a really big club to slap the United States and I was the rest g- of the world around with and that they're Israel. not willing to give up. And all, yeah, it gives them a way to distract from their own domestic problems, right? We've seen that autocrats do this yeah. in Russia. Let's not forget most of the Middle East is autocratic regimes. So they all have their own instability issues, economic yeah. issues. And they can go and point and say, look, look at what's happening with Palestine. Look at what, you know, big bad Israel is doing in the United States. It get, like you said, it gives them a punching bag and they can deflect. In 2007, when the Gaza Strip was formed, well, I think this even goes back. When, when, when Israel was formed in 1948, I believe, yeah. when, when the British 1948, just said— 1948, the partition by the it. British. They took in, I think, four or 500,000 Jews, Jews that got kicked out of Arab countries. They absorbed them into Israel. They didn't know who they were. Right. They didn't know what their their ideology was, but they were forming a. They were their own people. They took them in because out of a sense that of that they had to. Why is it that these people in Gaza have garnered no such affection of anybody in the Arab world? It's because nobody trusts them. How many people of that two point one million? How many are Hamas and how many are just pop Palestinians? I don't think we have any idea. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't agree with Ron DeSantis that everybody in Palestine is an anti and the Gaza Strip is an anti-Semite. No, that's, I don't. Yeah. I think that's pretty stupid and political. But I can't, on a practical level, figure out how would you provide aid to them? If anything, you give them, they just make weapons out of, 
And the Arab world has said, there is no way for us to take these people in. What's the expectation of what we can do outside of a military response? What type of aid package, what type of refugee program should we set up for Gaza? I don't think there's going to be any. And I don't think really, maybe there shouldn't be any. I mean, it could it could be in the form of currency it would have to be actual like assets and I mean, items and equipment that are usable on the ground just because you, I mean, anytime you, if you funnel money, I mean, who's going to own and control what's done with that? I'm talking about cash. this, Brandon. We just roll up four or five big cruise ships and say, take as much shit as you can carry. If you want out of this hellhole and you want someplace different, just get your ass on, on that boat. We will sort you out when we land and where we go. Yeah. But other than that, what 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 expectations should they have of the United States to provide aid to these to 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 the to the refugees to the Palestinian people? I, I don't I don't know because right now the security of Israel comes first, right? And there's nothing that can take a backseat to that. And Israel is going to roll across that border and they're going to smash the shit out of those people, and it's going to be extremely ugly. But there's just no way there's no way around it. There's no other path to take. Israel was created to to for the Jewish people to never be attacked like this again or if they are there's going to be some hell to pay here comes the hell to pay and it has to happen if you don't allow Israel to wipe out Hamas then you should just disband Israel there's no need to have Israel at that point is there yeah i mean Israel cannot have its security no um threatened and and can't survive If you tell Israel after the mutilation of babies, the kidnapping of Holocaust survivors, the murder of 1,400 people, that you have no right to defend yourself, then dissolve Israel. Hey, Brandon, when when we suffered a terrorist act, I'm pretty sure we took over two countries, right? We did, Afghanistan and Iraq. For like 20 years and like 15 years and killed hundreds of thousands of people. That was our proportionate response right oh yeah we took over two independent countries now they were terrorist states and blah 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 and all that shit but you tell me what's proportional for for israel yeah and i think that's what makes us a little bit hypocritical too when we are kind of hand slapping israel and saying don't do this when it's like well look at our history i mean recent history where yeah are you i mean we took great liberties and we had many i mean the the scale civilian casualties in afghanistan iraq was enormous didn't give a shit about that you're right and now we're going to slap israel's hand and lecture to them i I do like biden's response moving in the two carrier groups into the mediterranean and i'm not sure where the other one came in and then also moving the the detachment of 2000 marines into the dead sea i mean that sends a a fairly clear message from Biden, the Biden administration that let a couple of those 100,000 rockets you got loose come across the northern border. And we can turn that area into a parking lot if we choose to We're do willing that. and ready. We're right there, yeah. One of those ships is the, uh, the new Gerald R. Ford. And it's the first Ford-class carrier on the, uh, in, in, uh, in our Navy. And I think it has over 120 planes on it by itself. Wow. So anytime we wanted to take that strip in Lebanon where we think those, those missiles are and just, just, just turn it to rubble, we, we have enough air power right now between those two carrier groups and missile strike capability. We, we could completely take out what, what, what's threatening them from Lebanon on the, on the northern border. Well, and I, I, I mean, that 
at some point will likely have to be part of this is the I response to Hezbollah. To. I mean, take out their existing yeah. firepower, yep. um, you know, because there's, I, I think there's a little doubt when all of the dust settles that, you know, there's involvement from them as well. I think that we're going to see the, the scale of involvement. I mean, you can't launch a mass attack like this um, without much planning. I mean, you're talking about yeah. months, if not years of planning. Yeah, I'm, I think Iran did finance this. I think they told them to do it. I don't think they directly planned it. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think there was involvement. I think there was financing. I think there yeah. was supply of you know weaponry, all of that. And they also had no idea they were going to do this. I mean, there's nothing in Hamas's past that would lead you to believe they were capable of pulling. This no, off. Hamas has always been about small scale yeah. attacks, like you know, one kidnapping at a time, one murder, and kind at of time. spastic things too. Yes. fire off twelve rockets, sporadic, yeah, and, and, and that's it. And I've heard a lot of analysis too that Israel, between the the Iron Dome and their technology around their fence, they may have just gotten lazy, may right. have just gotten complacent, and said, well. There's no way they can get around this, and and we're good. And that's not the case at all. I mean, it's the history, especially of democratic states, you know, that are you know affluent and um, and uh, you know get complacent, and they can go years without being um, under attack or threat, and yeah. and then they let their guard down, or they get distracted by domestic issues, and that's when terrorists tend to strike. I mean, it's not unlike what happened you know, with us in nine eleven. You yeah. know, we were we were in this new era of prosperity and peace. We thought, you know, yeah. the international wars were over, conflicts had ceased. You know, I think back to especially like the mid to tail end of the Clinton presidency, you had um, uh, political scientists like Francis Fukuyama that were talking about what are we going to do with our all of our time now that we're not going to ever have I conflicts hate in the that future. Guy. Every time I hear him on a podcast, <laughs> I'm like, good. You Lord. know, he said that he's like, we're not going to have conflicts anymore. It's just going to all be peace and trade, and yeah, and we're going to have all this spare time and have to figure out what to do with it. Was it Friedman who's like, once there's McDonald's in Russia, peace will come? I, yeah, Friedman was. Yeah, the it, whole. It, it's the same naivety, naivety, naivety that Trump has. There's a book called McWorld versus uh, jihad that talks about that. So it's about like uh, kind of globalism versus tribalism Mm -hmm. and which one will win out. They're a constant war. And, you know, globalization was on the ascent throughout the 90s into the early 2000s. And then tribalism spoke, uh, struck back on 9-11 and continues to strike back in different areas of the world. So that tension is constant between the two. Biden's moved two aircraft carrier groups into the area. He's put 2,000 soldiers on a boat right off the coast of Israel. I mean, you could not ask for a stronger response. I mean, his initial condemnation as well was uh, could not have been stronger. So I think every uh, reaction to this attack has— Every response has just been what we would want to see and expect out of an American president. He's going to Israel tomorrow. That's a war zone. He's going to Tel Aviv, I guess, tomorrow. I I, I think he'll be on the ground. They said only maybe 90 minutes. It's a quick in and out. And I I mean, if someone takes a shot at Air Force One or lobs a rocket at that airport while Biden's there, I mean, just make the call and we'll we'll, we'll go. But But that is pretty— surreal if you think about American president visiting a war zone like that. Trump would never do that. Oh, yeah. No, not at all. Okay, so we've got all these military pieces on the board. We've got the impending invasion of of Gaza, which will happen soon. By the way, somebody said, I think it was 36 days from the day the the towers fell to our first ground operation 
in Afghanistan. That sounds about right. Yeah, so, from what I recall. You know, they also, too, they have 300,000 reservists that have returned to Israel. It's going to take some time to organize those folks, figure yeah. out what units they're in. And they don't want to make a move into Gaza until they are shore up as they can, both with their own troops and with our, our air force. Because logistically— What's happening on the northern border. It's very challenging because yes. you're talking about very narrow streets— um, uh, the line of sight is very difficult in places yeah. because of the tall buildings um, and the sharp turns. You have that network of tunnels, you know, that Hamas uses below the city, uh, booby traps, you know, IEDs, um, everything. Is <laughs> I saw an interview with Nikki Haley on Fox today, and she had a video where she was down in those tunnels and all of that. 90s neocon Nikki. She's just... She's just fooling herself. Wait, when right? was she down? You mean before? when she was when she was with the UN? I believe. Oh, okay, from what back? But okay. I, I mean, I know she's having a little moment, and this may be a little bit in her wheelhouse. But '90s neocon Nikki, there, there's there's no appetite for her, is there? No, there well, can't be, and definitely not within her own party and base. Still, like I, again, I mean, we're fooling ourselves if we think that um, any of the candidates besides Trump is going to gain any traction, even with this. Yeah. I mean, Trump is doing his best to just be outrageously stupid, stupid, insane. And, and show that he's not competent no. when it comes to foreign no. policy. Um, you know, I, I mean, he criticized Netanyahu, condemned him, Brandon, he praised none of, Hezbollah. None of this would happen. Just his big orange presence in the White House would have kept Hamas out of that. Out of that. Border. When you have an Israeli defense minister calling out a former U.S. president as being shameful, like you that, know that that's like we're in a bad. whole different. But none of that matters, right? I mean, it doesn't. I mean, his bases are going to leave him over that. They're no. not going to care. Like, I mean, you know, he criticized Netanyahu before and condemned him, and supposedly his friend back when he was president. So it's just. It's none of it matters. It won't stick, and Trump will still be the nominee. So it, it, he can't do anything to change that. How involved does America get in this war? I was going to ask: Do we get involved? We're going to get involved. We're going to be. No get, it's just a matter of extent. I mean, I I don't see. We're not going to have boots on the ground, um, but um, aerial support, yeah. um, naval support, definitely. Um, like you already uh, illustrated so far, right now it's a show of force. It's about creating yeah. a perception that, you know, we're there, we're ready to strike, we have Israel's back. Um, but it could easily go beyond that, especially with um, air and sea power. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's not out of the question. I just don't see boots on the ground happening. Do you think we'll end up bombing? Lebanon and bombing those Hezbollah positions. Southern Lebanon. Southern um, Lebanon. I, I think that's going to happen at some point, um, whether mm. it's us or the Israelis. I think it, in this conflict before it's over, that's going to occur. If I was the United States, I'll say, hey, right now we're, we're more than willing to take out Hezbollah on, on your northern border with our, with, with our air power if you need it. I mean, the Israeli Air Force is pretty capable what we don't want to do is boots on the ground, and I, we don't want to go into Gaza, and we don't want to go into the West Bank. Yeah, we are not going to stumble onto Middle Eastern territory again with with soldiers. I just don't. There's would, one word it would for get that. Really bad. For it's that called to quagmire. Yeah, that's what that becomes. Because the Gaza Strip is going to be a giant quagmire. There's yeah. no in. There's no out. This is going to take months, if not longer, to accomplish. I guess the goal is still. Every person that we can identify Hamas, we have to we got to eliminate. It's going to be deadly. Um, <laughs> the uh, fatalities are going to continue to pile up. We got to be ready for that. 
Like, there's no way around that. You can't, especially in a densely populated place like that, you can't take out Hamas without there being significant civilian casualties. Um, granted, you will try to do everything, I think, as Israelis will to prevent those, but it's going to happen just based on the layout and based on the the, the territory itself and the composition. I mean, it's not... you. Can't. Have you been taken back about the level of support and the level of passion, it seems, for Hamas? Uh, are, are you talking about, like, the college just, campus? Yeah, the college campuses, the protests, yeah. the letters, the... The, the signs coming out pro-Hamas and, and pro-Palestine. So, I'm, I mean, there's a lot of that, and that's been a consistent on college campuses for decades now, especially with Palestine. So that doesn't surprise me. I guess what surprises me was that it was so quick, and it occurred, I mean, just, I mean, the dust had not yet settled from that horrific attack by Hamas, yeah. and you had these pro-Palestinian rallies where immediately some of these people were signing letters and condemning Israel and basically blaming them for an attack on their civilians. And that's where I was just shocked and outraged at, I mean, not only was it that quick, but there was no uh, rational proportionality when it came to uh, talking about this. I mean, you can support free state of Palestine and two-state solution, and acknowledged that um, throughout times in their history, maybe Israel has uh, behaved too aggressively towards the Palestinians. They've there's been, a lot of criticism you can there's a lot of, And there's a lot of it that's valid. Very valid. Uh, very valid, in fact, um, which I would agree with. But to then, uh, to somehow uh, equivocate and say that somehow Israel is getting what it deserved or... This is because of the lack of rights in Palestine. So you're, the, the tendency to just give the benefit of the doubt to a terrorist group was what is appalling. You should be able to come forward, even if you support Palestine, acknowledge the humanity on both sides and say the horrific attack on Israelis was awful. There's no excuse for it, period, end of discussion. Um, like those two, like supporting a free Palestine and being against the attack on Israeli civilians, a terrorist attack, those should not be at odds. Yeah. Well, I, what I love about the Constitution is everybody talks about They're free not speech. They're mutually exclusive. Correct. They never talk about freedom of association, which I think is just as strong and just as fundamental as right. free speech. You can't make me join a club. You can't make me work someplace. I'm not assigned by the government that I have to belong to this organization. And that is something so core to who we are as Americans. I think these kids, certainly from Harvard, I don't believe you should out them. I don't believe there should be some mass um, mass uh, shaming of these kids or, or effort to keep them out of the workplace. But get ready because you're going to have to answer some questions. Right, right. No, I don't agree with that either. But I think as a student, I mean, you're basically a young adult. You should know enough to know that, you know, you are um, putting your future and your future career in jeopardy by signing on publicly and putting your name on something that is highly controversial. And we know that especially in today's day and age, we're not talking about doing it in 1984. We're talking about doing it in 2023, where everything lives on with the internet. And, you know, a quick Google search can turn up that your name was on this list. Hey, kids, I I hate to tell you, if you're graduating Harvard, I know it's a great school and you've got a great career in front of you, but you're about to enter the world's biggest open air prison. It's called work. Yeah. I, I hate to tell you this, but the world of work kind of operates a lot like the Israel-Gaza relationship. There's a lot of shit you're going to have to do. You don't want. Uh, it's just, it's just, 
the lack of foresight from those people to think that anything you do will never come with any type of repercussions. No consequence. And that everybody thinks exactly like you think. And just the arrogance to think that you could take something this complex that stretches through time and people in space this much and condense it down to what they did, I just think is the heart of just asinine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's overly simplistic. If there's consequences to that for those folks, so be it. Well, yeah, it's this groupthink mentality, right, on these college campuses. They're insulated from the real world and from, you know, the full breadth and extent of what's actually happening. So they can compartmentalize, right, and focus solely on the plight of the Palestinians. And so anything and everything that happens outside of that to Israel doesn't matter because they're seen as the colonizer or the aggressor. It's a very dangerous place to go because again it requires you to just dispense with humanity on the other side it doesn't allow you to stop take a step back and actually look at uh the fact that civilian populations on any side should not and should never be targeted for extermination it's the whole reason why we have a UN Declaration on the Rights of Citizens, why we have Geneva Conventions. Mm-hmm. We have all of this international law that was passed in the aftermath of World War II specifically to uh, um, ensure that countries and um, uh, non-state actors would uh, respect the rights of civilians in conflict and do as much possible to not target them and to uh, ensure that they're not collateral damage. And so this is a, an example of the breakdown of the rules-based international order after World War II as well, because not only Hamas, Hamas has said F you, and they're going directly after mm-hmm. civilians in a mass attack. Um, we've also seen that with um, terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but Russia is doing that in Ukraine, directly targeting civilians, which is not standard operating uh, procedure for warfare, standard yeah. rules of, uh, of, of war. Uh, so, you know, this is becoming more and more frequent, but it, it also shows it's a breakdown in the post-World War II rules-based order, yeah. which is also very alarming. And I would suggest we all start using the word anti-Semitic. It's too clinical. I, we should just call Jew-haters. You're a Jew-hater. That's what they are, You yeah. hate Jews. Every time this happens with Israel— it's just I don't I still I don't get it. Where does all of this hatred for Jews come from? It still exists in the world at all kinds of levels. It's still a problem. Right. And it just feels like we've made no progress in that part of the world figuring out how to get past this. And I don't give a shit that you think that land was yours two thousand years ago. Land changes hands all the goddamn time. And that's happened throughout history. That's right. I mean history is a story of that's you know, right. Powers conquering and then being conquered. And, you know, and that's you, so you can't use that as a justification or rationalization. If that's your approach, you're doing it wrong. You're 100% doing it wrong. You can have empathy for the people that got kicked off that land, but where does it stop? I mean, if you start playing this game, you just, you never land at a spot. Well, and there are historical claims to that land by the Jews. Multiple going back, people have, yeah, thousands, including and Jews. Many, and many peoples have. So, yes, it, there is not just one um, group of people, ethnicity, tribe, that lays claim to that land. And that's been the challenge from the beginning is because that land specifically, I mean, if you were to do some type of, um, uh, what do they call the, the camera footage where they 
uh, speed okay. it up. Like if you did some kind of like time lapse, time lapse yeah. um, with like an overlay of maps in terms of control of that area. I mean, it's astronomical when you would see the different regional powers and the yeah. the different uh, empires that control that land. It has shifted hands, like you said, and so many times. I think I'm right about this, but there's never been a country called Palestine. Palestine's no. never been a place. I mean, before it was Israel, it was what, Judea and Sumeria or something, and they hung out the there The word or Palestine something. was actually, it comes from the Romans. Yeah, Palestine it's a, was never a country. Palestine is a word that the Romans gave to the region, but it also wasn't the, uh, the legal term for mm-hmm. the, the state itself. But the word Palestine is actually derived from the Romans, which you know predates yeah. the Muslim population that was there. Thanksgiving, Brandon, six-ish Weeks, four-ish weeks from now? God damn, this year is flying. Where are we at at Thanksgiving with this? Uh, well, so if thanks, so I, I think at that time, we're probably still, um, there's still operations within Gaza. I yeah. think they're still rooting out of Hamas that's happening. Um, it'll be interesting. I think it's very possible by then that there will be um, operations to take out Hezbollah in southern Lebanon as Agreed. well. Um, Is and there th- any way we avoid that? I don't think that's I avoidable think so. with, with this. And I think Israel recognizes that um, this attack was so egregious that if they're going to go full scale, they might as well you know, take yep. out Hezbollah as well. I mean, do it all. This is why Israel exists. If you don't allow them to take out Hamas, you might as well just, just dissolve Israel and go from there. I think by Thanksgiving, we're going to see the casualty count, um, <laughs> you know, probably somewhere like at least seven or eight times higher than yeah. what it is now. So I think that's a, a definite. Um, there's going to be the, I don't know what to say about the refugee issue, because I don't, I don't know, know if it, Egypt will open its borders. It doesn't look like it. No, they've um, said hell no. So that's going to be um, a a nightmare just in terms of uh, uh crisis a humanitarian crisis in gaza in terms of food water electricity so i don't yeah. know what happens there unless you start to see countries in the region and i do want to just get back to your point this is what's for the longest time much of those middle eastern states could have stepped up even now and taken a role and say a hey this is what we percent. propose here's it's our idea their here's our problem solution. to solve but they never they propose never anything it. they never no. throw anything out there I mean, other than condemnations, which nothing in good faith, makes, right? And again, there's no leadership. That's the thing. None of those states I mean, provide leadership. Do, Israel has not put foot in Gaza since 20, 2007, right? I mean, it's been how many years is that? Sixteen, seventeen. Yeah. I so they haven't been there. They haven't been ruling. It's not like the Israelis have been an occupational government that have been governing the Gaza Strip, they, they pulled out totally. Right. The, the other thing, too, that just aggravates me to no end, is, is there any other historical, recent historical examples of Israel giving up land and achieving peace with an Arab country? 1979, they gave the Sinai back to Egypt. Hasn't been a problem since. Israel has a history with multiple Arab countries of giving back land, negotiating peace, and being able to at least coexist with that neighbor, not trying to actively destroy Israel. Why is it that the people of Gaza and the Palestinians can't seem to land in the same spot? Well, and we can't forget, and this was back when uh, the Palestinian Authority was the the governing authority for all of the territories, including Gaza and the West Bank under um, Yasser Arafat back in 
2000. During the Clinton administration, the Camp yeah. David Peace Accords, that was the closest to peace possible. The PLO. And it was something to the effect of like they were the Palestinian leadership was offered 97% of the land area mm-hmm. that they wanted and it was rejected. And they said no. And they said no. So I, I don't understand how we get no. to peace either if we can be that close and there's a refusal to accept that. Like that's just. Let's pivot topics on things we don't understand. Your former party, Brandon, is just having themselves a time. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if this is by design. I don't know if they they want this. Correct, correct. They're trying to prove that they're not a governing party. So they are doing everything possible to say, please do not reelect us. We have no business being in the majority because we are not here to govern. We are here to cause chaos. We are chaos agents, and we are thriving in dysfunction. That's what they're doing. Did you watch Game of Thrones? No, I have. I've, I've okay. always wanted to start it, but now I'm so behind. It's, it's one, just it has one not of happened. my favorite characters in Little in uh, Game of Thrones is a pimp named Littlefinger, <laughs> and Littlefinger's favorite phrase is "Chaos is a ladder." When chaos is happening, that's when you can really climb from your station to oh, somewhere a ladder. Oh, okay. a ladder. I see somewhere higher that you would never have got to without the chaos. Oh, that describes the current speaker candidates. So is that? Well. Do you think that philosophy is set in? And they're just trying to create chaos because people are seeing what ladders maybe pop up as the chaos continues. I'm out of logical ideas to what the Republicans are I think are that's doing. a natural uh, effect of this uh, uh, corollary. I don't think that's the ultimate goal. I don't think they know what they're doing. And you have a caucus. You have a the Freedom Caucus cohort, a segment of them that are just so crazy, they want to blow everything up and they don't care. Um, it's not so much about rising through the ranks. It's just about um, causing dysfunction because they feel like that's what they were elected to do. So that's really at the heart of all this. And then you have the rest of the caucus who are too uh, measly mouthed and too weak yep. who won't stand up to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's part of the problem here. Um, the fact is you have many... Um, I don't want to, they're not, I don't want to really call them moderate Republicans because they're not moderate Republicans in the old sense of the word, but you have Republicans from Biden districts. Traditional Republicans. Traditional Republicans, yes. Um, Who, you know, have made a lot of noise and saber rattling, but at the end of the day, they kind of always come home to the party. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if they would stick together, they could be a force, especially here in this moment, and say no to Jim Jordan as speaker. We're not going to have... Which they did today. They did today. An ultra-right Christian nationalist who... (laughs) supported and aided and abetted the insurrection who tried to overturn the election results who has um tried to defund the government multiple times who has never had a uh, successful piece of legislation pass out in of 16 the house 16 years not one and we're going to like this guy is our leader brandon you know more about the legislative process from your time on the hill than i do but as i'm putting together who would be the worst potential speaker in the House of all time? It's Jim Jordan. Oh, absolutely. That profile, because the Speaker of the House is a gladhander, a handshaker, a coalition builder. They're a wheeler and a dealer. They're Kevin McCarthy. And fundraising. He is and not going to be able to raise money. I mean, Wall Street, uh, you know, all of the big GOP donors, they're not going to give so to Jim Jordan. wasn't it obvious Steve Scalise was the next speaker? I mean, that was— yeah. and. I thought what the pubs did was we're going to take a week off just because let everybody calm down. Let's get some get some baseline talking and rules going. Then next week, we're going to give everybody a chance to say their shit. And then we're going to have an election, right, between Jordan and Scalise. And whoever wins, 
That's who we're taking to the floor, and every single one of you a-holes is voting for him. I thought that was, I thought that was how they were doing this. But no, so Scalise— Who won? 113 to 99. He won, yeah, but, and did it hit the magic number, which is one— um, Oh, what is 217. it? 217. I was about to say 117. I knew Please, that was the right. I wish it was 117. I know, right? Jesus. Or I wish it was just like a simple majority. Like, it wasn't like a simple plurality. First one to 100 point. wins or something. Plurality, yeah. right? Because, I, I, well, actually, that would never be the case because it was a plurality. Hakeem, Hakeem Jeffries, Jeffries would have won. Been, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so Scalise comes out ahead, but then he throws in the towel and he just says, I'm out, I don't, which I, I didn't don't expect. Get that. Like, so what was. I've heard McCarthy and Scalise never got along. Oh, yeah. They're because kind of Scalise enemies. knew, yeah. I'm your number two, but I don't, I don't give a shit what you say because I know you're going to be gone. You're a short timer. Gates and those crazies are going to whack you the first but chance this is they what get. I, I, there, I have no love lost for McCarthy. I can't stand him. But if he's supposed to be the closest to an establishment Republican or what used to be left of it, um, but he's a big supporter of Jim Jordan. I mean, he could have easily yeah. said, no, this is the direction we're going to go um, and pick somebody who was more pragmatic and palatable. And What do would... you think of Jordan's tact of getting Sean Hannity to reach out to moderate Republicans and basically threaten them to vote for Jim Jordan. You didn't see this? No, I... I, I oh, my. I'm, I'm kind of shocked Sean right Hannity's producers sent every, like, like the 25 or 26, the, the moderates that, that you talked about, sent them all letters from his producer saying, Sean would like to know, why are you voting against this? What, how have you talked to the people in your district? What are you going to do when Fox News wants you on T thing and has you answer these questions? Basically threatening a group of moderates that if you didn't get on board with this, Sean Hannity was going to take the full force of Fox News up your ass and you were going to get primaried. Uh, a lot of those people said, hey, Sean, fuck off. Yeah. I- I'm not here for that shit. Well, first of all, that's a complete wrong way and yes. like back ass way to do it because you primary those people, then Democrats are going to win those seats. I mean, they're going to win them now almost. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Barring like some huge change, I mean, Democrats are in line to gain the majority back in 2023. I'd be stunned if they didn't. I mean, you look at the areas of pickups, you look at the net seat in Alabama mm-hmm. with the Supreme Court decision, yep. there's probably more to you come in some Bobert, of the southern states. She's already she's, gone. Yes. So they are already there in terms of plus three getting those seats back. But then, I mean, if you want to take out the moderate Republicans in primaries, they will be replaced with Democrats. People yeah. like Don Bacon, people like Mike Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Like that is going to happen. You're just going to increase the majority of the Democrats and give them more cushion. It's insanity to think that that's the way to go. But again, you're also talking about somebody, Jim Jordan, who there's no logic there. He's from a hard right district. He is uh, all about like true ideologue believer. So he's not about strategy. No. I mean, he's not thinking about he's the not majority. A fundraiser or no. recruiter. He can't get legislation. He's not going to be able through. to do any of that. And how is Jim Jordan going to get these twelve goddamn appropriations budgeting bills passed? He's yeah. not. I mean, even the process with trying to gain votes and the speakership process, people have looked at like him personally, like what he's done, and they said like he's like he's lacking. I mean, he's not even doing what you should be doing. Hey, Republicans, this is when you inject so much crazy into your party. Eventually, that crazy, that crazy metastasizes, yeah. and that's what you have now. Now you have a completely unwieldy, unmanageable group of folks who 
politics is a collective action game, especially in the United States. It's about compromise. You have to compromise. That's right. I mean, it, Jordan could come and say, let's, you know, let's cut a deal. Like, what can I, how can I help you with legislation you care about if you'll support me? He's not doing any of that. In fact, he hasn't made those personal calls. Like you said, he's had Sean Hannity, but others as well, from what I've heard, just call and threaten these members. That's not the way you no. get people on board. Have you ever been in a work situation where there's something really, really kind of bad or tough happened and it required everybody at work to come together? And at the end of the coming together, the process, half the people never talked to the other half of the people again. And in six months, multiple people had quit over what had happened over three days in that room. The things that were said to each other, how it got personal, things that shouldn't have been pointed at somebody who, 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 who was pointed. I guess what I'm trying to say is, after three weeks of, I'm going to say three, I'm going to guess by the end of the week they have this solved. After three weeks of this and this process, which by all accounts has been very bruising, what relationships are And so much are damage left? already inflicted. That's right. Yeah. How much damage, what's going to be left of the Republican Party in the House once we get to the end of this process? Very little. Again, I think this has already uh, moved opinion and perceptions. I mean, if all of the opinion polls show that Americans' um, sentiment on the Republicans in the House is down, and it continues to drop a couple points every week. And this, it all started back when this chaos started. Uh, but so that is pretty clear in terms of the polling numbers. But in terms of being able to get anything done, I mean, they were already at loggerheads and already, yep. you know, gridlocked. I mean, this is only going to accelerate at this so point. So I was watching Fox at the time when the voting kicked off. And I think Bacon out of Florida, maybe? No, Nebraska. Nebraska. So he's Omaha-based okay. congressional district. Oh, he, yeah. he's the one blue guy, the one blue strip in That's in right. Nebraska? So that's the district that voted for okay. um, Biden, if you recall, and also voted for Obama. So when he voted for, I think he voted for McCarthy, I yes, believe. he did. He cast and a vote for McCarthy. And Brian Kilmeade from the Fox Net said, dumbass, so loud, it was clearly picked up on, on a hot mic. Oh, really? <laughs> so... The conservative media, even the far-right conservative media, who kind of cheered this on a little bit or thought, again, there's a ladder here. If you create enough chaos, we might be able to ladder up what our positions are. Even they have said, we're beyond the point where anything positive is going to come from this. We really need to bring this to a, to a conclusion. So now the media has really started to turn on the Republicans in Congress, too. And there's just no way— I think the I don't think even if the if Jordan somehow gets elected tomorrow, damage has already been done. I don't think yeah. there's any way you pull out of this without no. hurting yourself in the 2024 election. Not at all. Like like yeah, there's no coming back from this. It's already done. It's just a matter of if it's going to get worse before it gets better. Why do the Republicans always seem to struggle with collective action? I mean, what is it that you tell Republican candidates running for Congress, that you're this free wheel independent. No, no, no. You're part of a big giant team and you're going to do what the team wants. Are those messages told to Republican candidates as they get into this game? Or are they told you're so smart, you're so awesome, you're a standalone entity, we love you, blah, blah, blah. Well, again, I think the there's been a shift, especially in the Trump era with the way recruiting has gone. They've you know, with Trump handpicking many of these candidates, you've had the party apparatus, the NRCC, NRSC, afraid to, you know, to, to have tough talks with these candidates about what governing yeah. actually entails. So instead, they just um, deflect. And, uh, and what happens is these candidates, you know, 
start to think that they are larger than the party, than the yeah. institution, and they can kind of do what they want. And they go in with that mentality. So it's a mentality change. And there's nobody sitting them down saying, no, you need to like really shift your mindset on this because you're one of 100 or you're yeah. one of 435. But they don't see it that way anymore. And it's the caliber of the candidates who are winning now, especially in these yeah. hard right districts, different than the past. Jonah Goldberg's talked about this a lot. And he does it in a very sarcastic, trolling way because he's been talking about this for years. And people just come at him with not good faith arguments. But, hey, do you like small dollar donations? All of this can be tracked back to yeah. the rise of small dollar donations. 20, 30 years ago, the party never would have let Matt Gates through the door. And if they did, if he did get through the door, they'd have yanked a knot in his ass real quick. Right. The only thing that allows the, these factions to erupt and to try to play um, um, Western-style parliament in Congress is the fact that Matt Gates is untouchable. He's a ruby-red ruby red district, yep. can raise all the 5 and $10 donations he wants. He's never going away, and you can never exert any external control over him. And that's where we've backed ourselves into. Exactly right. I've been impressed with Hakeem Jeffries doing all of this, but Tlaib put out, Rashid Tlaib, Democratic squad congressman, put out a tweet today basically blaming a hospital bombing on Israel and saying she held the POTUS personally responsible and she tagged POTUS in the tweet. I have a feeling Hakeem Jeffries is going to walk down to Rashida Tlaib's office tonight, and those two are going to have a really, really in-depth conversation. And I he's think he's going so. to explain to her how hard things are going to get if you go at POTUS like that again. You, you can do all the shit you want. I, I, I don't care. But when you start tagging that at the president— that's not gonna. That's not gonna work. No, and I mean, this comes on the heel of some of her statements in the aftermath of the Hamas terror attack, where she has, you know, shown solidarity with yeah. the Palestinians and um, and has not been as forceful on Hamas. This is a pattern with her. Um, and it's a, it's a problem. Uh, so yeah, I, I yeah. will be interested to see if the tone or tenor changes. And by the way, it's pretty much. I think the evidence is solidly leaning to that was a Hamas rocket that that shot that yeah, hospital. Yeah, I'm hearing that as well. Yeah. You know, and um, the uh, Biden's press secretary was asked about, um, I think it was uh, Tlaib and Cory Bush's statements last week. Yeah. And she was very vocal and very strong in saying that we don't agree. We yeah. find that despicable. That's not our is, position. Is Ron Klain still the chief of staff? I think so, yeah. Because isn't this where, I mean, if, if if the West Wing taught me anything, this is where your chief of staff just gets on the phone and says, you will fall in line. Oh, he would be the one to do it, yeah. absolutely crucify you. Somebody's going to have to get a hold of the, the members of the squad and get them on one page and get them back on, on the team before they cause them some damage here. Yeah, I agree. Because I think, like you said, Hakeem Jeffries, I mean, his, I think his conduct in the aftermath of the war, but also during the speaker yeah. uh, saga and chaos has, I mean, it's shown that he's stable. Here's what stability looks like versus chaos. Yeah. And that's what you would expect. I think out of like uh, someone who you would want to be leader second in line from the presidency, Brandon, not Jim Jordan. Let's end with, give us a few minutes about Poland and the Poland election. I know you were just over there and I didn't realize Poland had take a pretty hard turn to the right, but in my opinion, I think they've corrected that. Yes, and I'm, I'll probably still do a separate pot on this because there's a lot to unpack and unravel. I was over there in September at the height of campaign season, so I saw election posters everywhere, and there were rallies going on, and I witnessed a protest outside the presidential palace for women's rights, gay rights, um, impartiality of the courts. But 
Uh, yeah, for the better part of um, eight years now, Poland has been governed by a far-right populist party uh, called Law and & Order. Um, and that party is very um, socially conservative, um, but also um, economically liberal. So they have tried to buy votes by giving out subsidies to families, uh, you know, with children. Um, very anti-gay. So people rhetoric. grift all over the world. Is what you're telling us? Yes. <laughs> A lot of anti-gay rhetoric. Um, so the party in power before them was Civic Platform, which was a center-to-center-right party. Former president of Poland who was on the Civic Platform party label, Donald Tusk, was also former um, European Parliament president. Um, that party supports more integration with Europe, um, with the EU, with Brussels. So the current government has also kind of like uh, stuck its fingers in the eyes of Brussels, yeah. you know, has kind of turned away from Europe. They've also tried to stack the Supreme Court of Poland with um, uh, more appointees to kind of overrule them, force judges into retirement. Um, they have co-opted um, state media um, to just provide their message. Uh, they even would um, had the state post office send out uh, ballot information, um, which actually promoted the government's candidates. Sweet. Um, so go. a lot of that is happening. I want to caveat and say that what's happened in Poland is not on a scale of what's happened in Hungary <laughs> yet, because Hungary has not only taken a far right populist turn, but um, th- like it's getting to the point where independent media is almost non-existent in Hungary. That's not the case in Poland. You still have independent media, but the government has taken over the state media completely. Uh, so this election was huge because it was the largest turnout in Poland since uh, the end of Soviet rule, 73%. And Civic Platform entered in a coalition with the other smaller parties. They garnered 53% of the vote. Um, so they will have the majority as a coalition in uh, the SEM, which is Poland's um, lower house um, as well as in, uh, so that is remarkable, and that's where a lot of the decision making happens. So they should be able to appoint um, a uh, prime minister, which may be mm-hmm. Donald Tusk again, um, who was the former prime minister. But yeah, this um, is remarkable for Ukraine aid, for further integration with Europe, uh, the direction of Europe in general as populist parties are gaining control. So basically, the Polish people said, you know, we don't like rule by the yeah. far right, by the populist, by this autocratic light you know we're rejecting that and that's what they did so poland has given aid to ukraine they've opened their border i believe at times to ukrainian they've refugees. accepted over um over a million so refugees at this they, point from they've ukraine. been a partner in ukraine yes but hasn't some of the issues much like the united the, the right in the united states there's a section of that right in poland that does maybe want to cozy up to putin a little bit more than people are comfortable to yeah, well, so there's there's part of that on the far right in Poland. There's part of the far right is kind of split. There's some of it that's still very anti-Putin, um, but they have issues with the immigration. They're wanting mm-hmm. to close off the borders immigration. Gotcha. Um, trade as well. So the governing party threw a fit um, regarding grain exports from Ukraine and tried to shut off that spigot. They yeah. didn't want any grain coming in. Um, in fact, their actions resulted in high-ranking uh, military resignations. Polish military who said they were just disgusted by the way the government was operating and politicizing the military. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to make too many parallels, but there are parallels to be made with the rise of this populist party, very similar to the rise of the MAGA right in the 
United mm-hmm. States. Typically, how this is performed, Poland didn't typically have regional trend lines with voting. They do now. All the cities go center to left. All the rural areas yeah. go far right populous, and that's what um, has typically been the paradigm in Poland. Uh, but the the bigger issue, too, is that the far right to consolidate power, they've referred to their opponents as either Putin sympathizers on one hand, which is ironic because one of their opponents is Lech Walesa, who led the solidarity yeah. process and overthrew Lech the communists. Lech does not like Russia. They've, they've called him a communist yeah. and a Putin sympathizer. Yeah, that's like, ridiculous. Wait a second. But then they've also accused the um, the the coalition that beat them of wanting to cozy up to Germany. They're like, if you elect them, Germany is going to co-opt our um, government and our policy. And so will Brussels. We won't have any autonomy. We won't be an independent state. So it's been a lot of fear mongering. Uh, but thankfully Poland rejected that. So I think it, it says a lot about Poland, which direction they want to go as far as the rest of Europe. Um, so it's, it's, I was very glad to see it. The mood was pessimistic going into this. In fact, a lot of the opinion polling, a lot of the punditry was saying that, well, it's likely that the governing party law and order is going to win another term. This would be their third term. Um, But that did not happen. And it was partially because of the massive turnout. Like polls turned out en masse and said, like, no, we're kind of done with this. This means more weapons to Ukraine. It means more support from Ukraine. And if Poland can put any type of pressure on Germany to step up its game, that's a big changer for Ukraine. And this government will likely do it. This uh, the current government does not have as great of relations with Germany, Um, a civic platform led government based on past history would and they would be able to have those discussions and collaboration with the german government probably influence them much more than the current polish government is able to do i mean i i still go under the guys that the biggest the biggest thing that changed that led putin to invade ukraine was when angela merkel left germany yeah They, they had a very close relationship and i'm pretty sure merkel told him you pull some shit like that in germany we will get right back into the military and the arms get we will not let you do that there's no coincidence that he invaded Ukraine after she was gone and that Germany is still fumbling around with its military response because it's just not something they're comfortable with. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, knew a, that. it's a major change for yeah. Germany. I mean, post-war yeah. change and going from not really even having much of a standing military at all um, yes. and refusing to engage to now like we're going to increase defense spending so they've started to do that, and they're they're getting there. But yeah, it's they need more yeah. push. I mean, that's why I hate people. It's our weakness and Biden's weakness in Afghanistan that caused Putin. To go. That is totally not. That is not no. relevant to the situation. No. So that mentality is short sighted because it fails to recognize that Putin is um, a long term. Um, a strategist mm-hmm. and he games this out and so he looks years ahead and so he with him it's about just finding the right moment to strike um everything going in order so yeah i mean it has nothing to do i mean and frankly i it i mean i am scared to think i mean if trump had been reelected, can you imagine uh. our response to the situation in ukraine <laughs> what, i mean what, what would we do in israel right now right i, I don't know we're going to talk about Trump next week because his cheese has slid off his cracker. Yeah. If you've watched him lately, this is not the 2016. No, he's spiraling. The, the, spiraling is a great word, and I don't think he's going to make it to November either. Some, something's bound to happen with him. Yeah. All right. That's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. 
Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.